Welcome to episode 45 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. I have to say that after listening to the eight white identities in its granular breakdown, I've had a lot to think about life because then my brother and I had a conversation about uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote his book Sapiens. And then I started watching an HBO special recently called from Raul Peck called uh, Exterminate the Brutes. And Mike, I have to say, since 2020, up to this moment of this single podcast, and after listening to the eight white identities, the world is horrific. We are living in hell per everything that I'm reading, everything that I'm ingesting. Now I'm starting to understand why people want to live in a fantasy. Now I understand why Walt Disney wanted to create a fantasy. Now I understand why... Athletes, for the most part, Michael Jordan didn't want to be involved in politics. When you find out the truth about politics, about society, about the way nations are created, we're evil people, man. From the beginning, uh, we believe in genocide. Do you feel like we live in hell and, and, and we need fantasies? Well, you're really bringing up an extremely deep powerful and a lot to unpack topic and here, here's my thought on that i think that on the one hand doing the barna hesse interview uh, is one of the great things about being uh, a journalist being able to have a show being able to investigate something that interests you and and learn more about it and the reason i love science fiction is because it's always about the human condition what is human nature or especially movies that really question what is it to be human and there's the good and the bad, but there are certain things that are constructed within our cultures and not just America, but really play to the worst in us, really allow the worst in us to run wild. And I think there is a reason why science fiction and fantasy have been the most money-making genres of all time. I think there's a reason why they're, in the last 20 years especially, as a, somebody who loves science fiction, it's a great time. There's tons and tons of science fiction and horror and fantasy, tons, tons of it out there, tons on TV, tons in the movies. It's, it's a huge, huge genre now. But one of the things that 2020 taught me, or and I can't shake it, I, I will never be able to see the world the same, is that we spend a lot of time distracting ourselves. We do a lot of things to distract ourselves. We, we embrace distraction. We are distracted from reality. We are distracted from our own reality. We watch reality shows which have nothing to do with reality. We're looking as human beings for distraction, which is why they're- But now I know why. Now I know why. Well, the thing is- Because I didn't know all of this. And it was, it's so heavy. It's so, so heavy, Mike. Well, it is heavy, but here's the thing now. Here's the other side of that now, coming back to humans and what it is to be human. We have a great capacity, you always hear me say it, uh, for denial. So what, what does it take? <laughs> what does it take for us? So true. What does it take for us to be in denial? of reality. How much distraction do you need to stop 
embracing or stop watching the horror of certain realities. And so I, when you say what you're saying, uh, I do understand. I, I, I do understand. And, you know, I read a review of them, which is the uh, show that Little Marvin produced, which is sort of a blend of both history uh, and racial tensions, but also it's a horror movie. So it's it's really about fears. It's about a lot of things. And we had a great conversation. But I read a review by a white writer. And, and what the review was saying is that, oh, it's it's too much to take. It's You become numb to the, the pain that these people go through and, and you don't have enough satisfaction as to what, you know, some of the, let's just say the, the antagonists are doing. They don't get enough of a comeuppance and, and you're not satisfied. And, and, and just the whole idea that, huh, the reaction we have to learning about painful things, difficult things, uh, things that are unpleasant, our reaction is to shy away from it, to become numb to it. That's the only way we can process it is if we become numb to it. But then if we become numb to it, and, and I think about this with the trial that's still going on for Derek Chauvin, uh, for George Floyd, how many times do you see something where you no longer have the natural human reaction to something? Now it's developed into something else. How many times can they show this man dying before... It doesn't become a man dying. It doesn't become a human dying. It becomes something else, something you dissect and and parse out. And the impact of it is lost. What I've come to understand is no one is perfect, Mike, and no institution is perfect. And you know what? There is no right way to do something. No, no. What there are, no, no. Here, here, here's, here's, and this is my opinion. I'm going to hear you out. They're standards of excellence, and we just found out that the standards of excellence depend on the culture that you're with. Standards of excellence, those are all stories we create. A professionalism, stories we create. We create what we think is excellence. Is God real? Is media right? What can you truly, really believe about anything? And so where I am today, Mike, is I just have no clue of what to do with all this heavy, ugly information about the world. And I do want to retreat into some sort of clandestine paradise and just watching movies, reading, you know, lighthearted books, watching romantic comedies, maybe just live in a comedy for a while. What's so wrong with living in a comedy for a while? Uh, you know, everything I turn on for the most part on TV or anything, dude, it's dark. Even DC, even superheroes have become dark. I think we it's time that we kind of just stop this endemic darkness that we're all living. And dude, honestly, just party. I have to say, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't know that I can completely agree. And I feel I feel it's nuanced. And a couple of things you said early on that really struck me. You know, you talked about how now that you know what you know. You look at the world differently, you feel differently, and, and you can't really, you, you'd have to escape that reality to refine happiness, to see comedy, to laugh again. Let's put that on a larger scale. One of the things we talked about with Barner Hesse is that what we know about reality, as you say, uh, what we perceive is, you know, what we, we decide we want to embrace or process largely determines our view on the world. And it's, again, the, the when we were interviewing Barner, he talked about we can't rely on the educational system to teach us 
real history. But what I responded was, we can't rely on our system of education. And then he went on to say that for things to change, you know, we have to have a, a different system of education. We have to have different ways of which we're being taught the truth. But it's not just about teaching the truth. It's also, like you said, it's how do you process this information? How do you process it and not be angry or depressed? And how do you stop yourself from doom scrolling, looking at bad and bad, bad things? After a while, your viewpoint changes. This is the reason I left news to begin with when I was at Univision and became an entertainment reporter. After 9-11, I, I was a mess, dude. The, my, my, my mind bent. It broke. My feelings, my emotions, I did not know how to handle two of the tallest buildings on the planet crumble before my very face. That, that's traumatic. That's beyond PTSD and seeing people fall. How do you process that and just go back to being happy? You can't. You can't unsee something like that, Mike. And so for me, my therapy was escaping into some ulterior universe, man, in my own mind that was all about arts and culture. It was my way to avoid the ugliness that we can create with each other. Now you hit something on the head there. You retreated just like we did in 9-11. What do we retreat to? What is the best place to retreat? When, we, when the world is horrible, where can you go? And the only place you can go to really find beauty is in art. Whether it's the art of comedy, it's the art of a movie, it's the art of a book, if it's going to look at paintings, uh, just beauty of nature, but it, which is, you know, nature's art. But I, I think that that is very important. And I think that the, the biggest problem I have with our society is that while we have all these advancements and we can we've grown a fetus in a test tube and we we you know we can clone animals and and, and genetically engineer our foods to make all men's penises smaller by 2045 all of those things we can do but we haven't grown uh and applied our our spiritual growth the, you know, everything you described, what you're going through in history, uh, reading these histories, seeing these histories, seeing these shows, seeing these documentaries, it's like when you go to war. When you go to war, you come back, you're a changed person. You have, you've gone through a traumatic, mm -hmm. stressful thing. And we all know that to be a cop, to be a soldier, there are a lot of jobs, a lot of experiences that are traumatic. And we know how to treat trauma, but we do not build it into our society. We do not have that as part of our diet of things that we absorb. Like you said, you know, you're absorbing all this information. Then what do you do with it? How do you process this? What is the method of processing this? I come back to now art. I think. But what happens when art becomes that darkness. Now you I see, mean, listen, you're, you're, you were oh, reading my mind. Okay, we, now we have <laughs> them. And one of the questions we asked Little Marvin, the creator of them, um, is black trauma, right? That there's been a lot of criticisms and complaints about black content, black stories today having to be traumatic, seeing black people suffer as a conduit to telling their stories or telling their art. And hold on. So I'm here reading like the indigenous genocide of the Native Americans in the United States at the hands of uh, white Christian Europeans. 
some light, sudden, some light reading, some light reading. You're doing you said? just some, just some light, light reading. reading. Yeah, some breakfast reading. Yeah. yeah, and then I saw this comedy called Them <laughs> on Amazon Prime <laughs> Video exactly. about a black family that moves into a white neighborhood, and holy shit, it is so scary because it's currently happening now in suburbs across America. That's well, not fake. That's that's almost real. It's it, it. These are true stories that happen. Maybe not like the way it's being portrayed in the show, but Mike, what happens when everywhere you look, your doom scrolling negativity, your art is negative, your real life is negative? What do you do then? Isn't at this point the 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 responsibility of art is to take us away and not always challenge something? Like, I'm sick of the challenging. I get it. I get it. But read the room. The climate is, please give us something to hope for, something to aspire to, something to be inspired by. We need that type of storytelling right now, Mike. I agree. And and we're going to definitely do a show on story and the type of storytelling because we're going to have a great guest coming up. Uh, and you will love him. It'll be the beginning. I will witness a love affair. But... Uh, and his name is Jeff Gomez, so I'm just going to put that out there. But I, I will say this to what you're saying. You know, I, what is the role, and, and we can discuss this on another show, and we probably will come back to this, but then what is the role of art in society? Why, a question I always like to ask storytellers, why do we need stories? What is the point of story? Human beings have been telling stories since the beginning of time. What's the point? And one of the best answers I always get is that it's to, to remind us of who we are, to show us who we are. And so... How does something become less a a traumatic experience and more a cautionary tale? Something that that will guide us. You know, negative experiences can influence a life to do something positive, depending on how you process it and depending on what's available to you as an antidote to the negativity that you're absorbing. has a brand new show out called Them. It's been created by Little Marvin, uh, along with Lena Waithe, who was involved in the creative process of the show. And uh, Mike, it's really about a, a black family uh, in the 1950s that moves into a white neighborhood and how the white neighbors react to them coming in. It's a horror story, um, as the trailers announce and advertise, but it's also much deeper than that. It's about the history of black America in this country and how fear, not only through the black eye, but also fear from the white eye. And it really brings into question what fear is to every single culture, what it means to them, how is that defined? And so I think that this show, what it really does well is explore that theme of fear, Mike. Pretty nice, huh? Bigger than I looked in the pictures. When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. You 
couldn't imagine a nicer place to live. I wish I was home. I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing. This home is ours. This is how it begins with one family. They came from someplace worse. We'll have to make this place worse. What's worse than worse? I heard them folks in Compton straight up evil, man. Fuck this. There's something bad in this house. I don't like it. We got our eyes on you. <laughs> we do this till it gets done. Them is an interesting contribution to the television landscape from 2020 until now because these types of stories weren't really seen on television as frequently as they are now. I mean, you turn on a television show, you turn on a movie, you listen to a podcast, you turn on the news, and it just seems that now this is very common to talk about race in America, which is much different than talking about race in any other part of the world. Um, so here in America, we obviously have this dark history that because so many people have had, especially the African-American community, have so many pent up stories to tell a need, a desire, an appetite to see these stories not just spoken about at private parties amongst a few people. So, right, that now we have the liberty to publicly speak our opinion and to show and represent and create art through this, uh, through these stories. What did it mean for you in particular to talk about them? And how has that personally influenced you uh, in a cathartic way, what have you let out of you? Have you grown because of this experience of shooting them? And what ultimately do you want to say that maybe hasn't been said yet so far? The short answer is a lot. <laughs> like I let a lot out. I, I felt in many ways like the show, uh, just on a personal note, even before it became a show, just when I was a guy in my room wrestling with the page by myself, it was an exorcism of sorts. I had to get rid of a lot of poison, a lot of anxieties, a lot of fear, a lot of dread I was having about the, the way the country was moving, questions about where we want to go and who we've been and the gulf between those things, um, and how there are folks you know, who feel kind of hell-bent on bringing us back to a time they considered great, which Black folks know was decidedly ungreat, and none of us want to go back to. So all those things were kind of roiling around in my head as I sat down to write it. And I think you know, making peace with a sense of, like, of terror, because that was really the entry point for me, um, that word has not been used as well as it should for the Black experience in this country. Let's talk about just the Jim Crow South. That was a domestic terror regime. It's time we call it out. It's time we make it plain. We can give it any other word. But this kind of behavior, it's always been terror, man. And so like exploring that, not only my own personal experience with terror, but like going back over a history of terror and exploring the terror of navigating this country in black skin, that was the, that was the jumping off point.
for me. Now, there's been some critique of the show. Has there? I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because I think we're all trying to have a say in America now, whether it's good, whether it's bad. It's my opinion, and I want to express my opinion, and I want it to be validated by everybody as well. And so none of us can really take critique as a form of real criticism anymore because they're so opinion-based and some of them are unfounded. But I do think that there's a lot of people that are very woke at a moment where they're reading more history than they ever have. I think a lot of the conversations, everybody's, you know, um, everybody's just regurgitating, you know, textbooks and history books and documentaries that they've seen to, you know, they sound really smart. And, but the criticism overall sometimes just does, seems to fall flat. I am not a black man. I am a Latino man. And, but I do have black in me, but it's not how I've identified throughout my life. One of the things that I found really interesting was this uh, idea of black trauma. And I've been hearing it over and over again. I spoke to Bush and Renz uh, recently about their film Antebellum. And Antebellum was very shock, right? Yep. Uh, black trauma, according to many people, was exploited uh, in this way. Now, Latinos don't have that trauma. So I was unaware of it on that deep level. So as a Latino watching something that I'm interested in, I'm looking at this and go, wow, man, Little Marvin's brilliant. First of all, the direction is excellent. The close-ups, the over-the-shoulders, just the play with cameras in itself is artistic. Thank you. Then the performances, uh, the dialogue, the situations, I mean, and then obviously the story itself is like, yeah. I can't wait to see this because it hasn't been my experience, but it's been the experiences of others. So how do you, how would you then talk about to those who have a criticism about black trauma and stories today? Should we continue to do them? Is it justified on your part to do this that causes that reaction? There's a few things I can say about that. One is one is that horror uh, has always trafficked in transgressive imagery and has always had trauma at the heart of it. I mean, I think of films like The Exorcist. If you watch The Exorcist today, that movie still makes me like, how the fuck, can I say, how did they get away with that? How did they get away with that shit even then? And then to see it now, tremendous trauma in that. Tremendous trauma in a movie like Carrie. I could go on, there, movie after movie, Deliverance, Straw Dogs, I could name so many movies where trauma is at the heart of, of horror. Uh, and and so that there would be trauma at the heart of a horror story to me is not um, is not unique. I would also say though that our show was never uh, we never set out to make a show about black trauma. In fact, we set out to make a show about white rage. <laughs> like if we're being very clear about that, this sh this show really explores white rage and it explores what it is like to be black. Um, in a world where there is white rage, in a world where there is a gaze that is on you, in a world in which there is terror constantly surrounding you. And so to make a show about trauma was never really the goal. The goal was to tell a great story. And also I would say to folk, it's a drama. I, it's not gonna be funny. <laughs> like You wouldn't like my drama if it was a slapstick comedy. So like, sorry, but that's just what it is. 
Uh, so I understand all of the sensitivities, but I think here's the thing about all of that, all the early kind of criticism is it's it's shifting even as we speak, because folks who actually see the show mm -hmm. and engage with the show, I think have been pleasantly surprised by the fact that it isn't actually what they came to the table thinking it might be. Discourse and angry discourse, that's par for the course. We didn't set out to make a show that was safe. We set out to make a show that, we, you know, that pulled no punches in terms of what it was exploring. And so we knew going in, it's going to be provocative in that way. That's just par for the course. So we're open to the dialogue. I'm excited for it. I, I think people should be in their feelings and, and, and we welcome it. Now, how does your show then differentiate itself from, let's say, Lovecraft Country, 12 Years a Slave, um, a Watchmen uh, that have told stories about white rage to a certain extent? I mean, I think all of these things are different. Here's the thing about this entire conversation that pisses me off. If I'm going to just be like very frank with you, the only things people name are those four things. So here's what I would say about that. On any right. given day, there are a thousand shows that come out that center white folks that are almost interchangeable in my mind. I'm like, oh, didn't I watch that on Netflix? No, I watched that on, no, I saw that before. Didn't I see that before? No one ever draws these comparisons. The fact that there are three things that you're naming that people have been naming in the last four years. Do you know what I'm saying? We need to actually ask that question. To me, it's not about like, why are these things similar? It's why are there so few of us in this sandbox that you're going to draw the comparison between the four kids who are doing this thing, right? So like for me, it's about widening that playing field. Just like Lena Waithe kicked open a door for me as a new voice, as a black voice, as a new voice in this industry. Now I want to go back and kick that door open for the next wave so that they never have to feel this experience because what you should actually be going is like, yes, another one, right? Not like- Right, right. So why do you think that we do that? I think it's actually only because there's so few. It's beholden on the industry and the folks in, in power to open up that sandbox and bring in all the voices. And by the way, it isn't just the black kids, it's the Latinx kids, it's the queer kids, it's the Asian kids, it's everybody who has never had a voice in this system and certainly right. never had a voice within genre filmmaking. Um, so I'm all for it, man. I mean, it's the, it's the time is now for more, not less. Tell me how you came up with this story. Is this based on a true story? Is this a story that came um, there's been directors like Bush and Rez were talking about how, how, how Antebellum came from a dream that they had, a nightmare actually. A few ways. I mean, I, A, I wanted to explore terror. I wanted to explore the American dream. I knew that. And particularly the American dream of homeownership, which, which has been anything but a dream for Black folks in this country. And so I knew I wanted to explore the dream of homeownership and to take us back to the beginnings of that real estate market, which is really in this like post-war industrial boom. So, so that's right. how I got to the story. And then in doing my research and seeing what Black folks experienced, I had a, a lot of um, uh, knowledge about the Jim Crow South, right? But I, did, I knew very little, I realized at the beginning of this, about what Black folks experienced moving uh, to cities of the West and the East and the North, and particularly to Los Angeles, to see that they were sort of met with much of the same terror and rage and hatred that would have been absolutely at home in the Jim Crow South, but it's happening in sunny Southern California, that was the light bulb for me. Like, because I, I think there's such this idea that we're living in this progressive kind of, you know, and we're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're not. Hate to break it to you, but we're not. The performances were unbelievable, man. Explain to me how this casting process came to be. What made these actors the actors for them? Uh, yeah. 
just tremendous fortune, frankly. I mean, there's a, there's a, when you sit down to write anything, there's the dream of your cast. I had a dream for this cast in my head. And then suddenly you see Ashley and Deborah and Shahadi and Melody, and you realize, oh shit, my dream was so small, <laughs> so <laughs> tiny, so nothing. Because these four come in, and then to say nothing of Miss Allison Pill, who plays Betty, who like comes in and you're like, my God, like I thought my dream was big, but these people are so much bigger than that. Uh, and every day I just, I mean, honestly, it sounds so stupid, but I would just sit at the monitor. Like I put on sunglasses so they wouldn't see I was crying. <laughs> I was like, how did this happen? I was so emotional about it, man. It was too much. Like, it, I, yeah, yeah. I love it. Wow, that's beautiful. I have so many questions. Uh, I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I was blown away. I, I'll be honest, it was hard to watch at first. And I think you did something brilliant by making it a horror story as well as a historical story. But let me ask you this. One of the things I, I took notes while I was doing it because it was so, uh, it, it was just so powerful. There's a lot you deal with, even in that first episode. And one of the themes is how fear controls us, how it turns us into different things, how we don't see ourselves truly until we confront our fears. And, and I feel like that's what it's about. And it's not just the, as Jack was saying, there's the internal fear, uh, and then there's the external fear. There's, you know, however that manifests. So I have to ask you, I, f I feel horror is a genre that has only recently become socially relevant again, having something to say. And this is a perfect way to talk about not just what scares black folks, but what scares people in general. And so you can kind of relate on every level. So tell me about using uh, horror as social commentary and, and about your theme of, of fear and how it manifests and how it literally can define you. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for your very kind words. That's uh, it means a ton. Um, so I'm let me breathe that in for a second. <laughs> Get back to you on the rest. Uh, that really means a lot. Um, uh, well, horror. First of all, I've been a horror nut since I was a kid, and uh, what I love about horror is exactly what you said. It has this ability, tremendous ability, to take super complex social issues and package them in a way to make it palatable. You know, there's a version of this story we could have told as a straight drama. And I think of, when I think of history, I think of history as a house, right? So like, I could have made a documentary about redlining. I could have found one family story and made a biopic. Would have worked, but that to me is almost like going through the front door of history. And I wasn't particularly interested in going through the front door. I actually wanted to sneak around to the back of the house, <laughs> bust open a basement window and let myself into the basement floor of history the place where it's dark and dank and the the biggest fears, the fears that are most unspoken, most taboo are down there and giving ourselves permission to actually roil around in those fears. That's the id at the heart of the show. It's the id at the heart of this nation. You know, we live in a haunted country, man, and haunted countries deserve haunted stories. <laughs> I will not be the last one to tell a haunted story because we're a haunted country. And every single year, that pain center gets nicked like it did last year, like it is every year, year on year, it gets nicked. And what it reveals is a tremendous chasm of pain and trauma and, and terror. And, and as it relates to your first part of the question about fear, yeah, fear warps 
Fear lessens, fear minimizes, it reduces you, it changes the way that you walk through the world. You know, I've had many conversations, particularly with my white friends, uh, who find it very interesting, <laughs> very <laughs> shocking, uh, some of these feelings that I'm like, what? You've lived, what? But anyway, well, that's another topic. But like, you know, it dawned on me this year that it hadn't dawned on me. There are behaviors that I have adapted based purely on fear, fear responses. So here's one. I realize this. I didn't even realize I'd do it. Every time a cop pulls up alongside me and feels the need to either inevitably nap, mad dog me for some reason, look longer than they should, stare into my window, do whatever it is in some effort to either intimidate me or, or profile me, I do this thing where I pretend like I'm on a phone call. I'll start like gesticulating with my hands. I'll start pretending like I'm talking. And my thought process, I realized, is if this cop sees I'm on a phone call, they're less likely to fuck with me. When I realized I do that, man, I was like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's actually crazy that I have adapted a behavior so as not to die as <laughs> a police officer. It's not normal. It's not right. And so I think we have to. It's beholden upon us all to be honest about this, man. There can be no reconciliation without truth telling. And it's time to share those things because it's poison and, and it's a, it affects the way you walk everywhere. I mean, I, I shouldn't go into a store and wonder, are they going to follow me in here? That should not be a question I think about, but it happens every time I go into a fancy store, uh, right? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, like I said, it's so powerful. And, and you just hit upon two things that I thought were important. You know, horror is also uh, cultural. Japanese have horror, Italian horror, you know, Sergio Fulci, you know, if you're a horror fan, you know what I'm talking about. But at the same time, the horror often reflects the culture. And what I thought was brilliant was on one level, comedy, horror, science fiction, they kind of all have certain things in common, in my opinion. And what horror can do is, like you said, fear, it, it's the great leveler. Like, everybody in the audience screams at the same time. You know, like, we're all scared. We all jumped. So what was difficult to watch was the real-life story, okay? The horror, like, oh, okay, I can relax. I'm waiting for a scare. Versus I was literally on the edge of my seat, and, and, and I found it hard to watch because, again, there's a lot of feelings, but you're reminded of how brave you had to be to face that fear, to go into that neighborhood, because at first you're like, well, what the hell? Why are you going to this neighborhood? You know, you're putting your children at risk, but then you realize, yeah, I, I, I can relate. You know, my, I'm old enough. My parents moved into a neighborhood when I was a kid, and I just remember all the white kids disappearing over, over time. And I, I vividly remember a child telling me, oh, she couldn't play with me because I was black. And I didn't, I didn't even understand that. So uh, tell me a little bit about, um, having these different perspectives because the children, you know, you tell everybody's story uh, and tell me how important maybe it is to, to unify through fear. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, what you said is, is actually beautifully put. Um, and the, and the question that you raise, it's interesting about moving into a neighborhood. Why would they, you know, what I think about that, here's the thing. Why wouldn't they, 
the American dream of homeownership is not owned by white people just by dint of them saying it is. It's, it's supposed to be all of ours, right? So like having the best home and having the best schools near you and being able to drive to your job, these are things we should all have. So I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of people along the way have been like, well, why would they even move there? I'm like, thank God they did because if they hadn't, if black folks had not moved to Pacoima, to Glendale, to Hancock Park, to Santa Monica, to Compton, to all of the, and then to Levittown, Pennsylvania, Chicago, Lansing, pick your, pick your place. I wouldn't be able to live where I'm living today. I wouldn't have gone to the school I went to. So that's, that's the why of that. You know, I've, I personal, on a personal level, I've experienced all of those things. You know, we've all been children. So we've had those experiences of not fitting in. I grew up in a very kind of lily white place in Northern California, being this weird kid who like always felt a little bit on the outside of everything. Um, and so being able to see that journey in both Melody's character, uh, Gracie, but very specifically in Ruby's and her kind of um, path towards self-acceptance and loving who she actually is and not some idea of what she thinks, something I could relate to. Henry's journey. Uh, I've worked in corporate America for many years before I decided to actually just sack it up and become a writer full time. And I can assure you, you saw the show. He walks into that bathroom and shoves paper towels down his throat to stifle a rage scream. Have I done that? No. Did I want to every fucking day? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, navigating what are just sort of, you know, what perpetually white spaces all the time plays with your mind. It's anxiety inducing in ways I don't think people understand. Going to a boardroom and being, this is a, I would notice that I would go to a boardroom. If I saw one other person who was black, we'd both be like, hey, like we were so excited to see. <laughs> That's not normal. That's <laughs> like, not normal. So, so each of these characters, I've been each of these characters in some way. I, I, uh, yeah, for sure. One of the big horrors of, of them is that it takes place in the 50s, but it really doesn't. It takes place now too. Black families moving into white neighborhoods are still going through maybe a more of a milder version of this. But as my wife really pointed out, it's just that the reality, like if you look at Jason and Michael Myers, there's a detachment from the horror. Oh, this can't happen to me. So I'm okay with it. I actually have fun with it because this feels so real and that it's still happening in so many areas throughout the country, it makes it that much more palpable. Then much more Wait, are you saying Mike Myers? You're saying Mike Myers wouldn't happen? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I may be down for some kind of experience. <laughs> so, no, but you're sorry, but you're but you're you're hitting on something that I just think is so key that like, you know, especially as it relates to the word segregation, people hear that word and I think they think of it as some word from a thousand years ago and they don't realize that it's part and parcel of the way we live today. I mean, these are fears, what you're just referencing right there. Will I get the loan? Will I not get the loan? Uh, when they appraise my house, why does it feel like they're appraising my house for far less than I should? When they meet me, will I get the house? Will I not get the house? These are anxiety insecurities that every black person I know has when they're looking for a home. And that's based on decades and decades and decades and decades of disenfranchisement within the race, within the real estate market. Uh, and the other part, uh, just in researching the show, I don't think we realize just how planned and designed oh, and how system. That was the eye opener for me, man, that there's been a cabal of forces from the beginning, home uh, uh, lenders, banks, 
real estate brokers, appraisers, city planners. I mean, freeways, let's just take freeways as an example. Sure, they were used to shuttle folks back and forth from the metropolis into the suburbs, they expedite travel, all those things are true. They also were used to bifurcate neighborhoods, just to destroy communities yes. of color. I live in Los Angeles, Dodger Stadium. Yay, we all love it. What did that used to be? Chavez Ravine, where thousands of Mexican folks lived. But the minute that Dodger Stadium account came in, their houses were, their homes were raised to the ground and they were thrown out. So it's always been us. It's always been us black and brown and indigenous folks who bear the brunt of the design of segregation, which is planned into every part of how we live as to be almost invisible. That's the scariest part. It's invisible. We take it for granted, but it's been designed that way. Well, I was just going to say you made such a fantastic point because, you know, our fear is invisible. You know, if there's such a thing as microaggression, then there's micro fear. You know, there, there's, a, there's a reason why we, there is that tension, whether you, you get the scream in or, or not. And one thing that also occurred to me about seeing something like this uh, and seeing it portrayed and, 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 and the way you've brought us in to this family's life is to also to remind us of just how little we think about what folks went through just to be here. Again, it's such a huge theme to, to confront your fears, but they're very, very specific fears that, that I, you know, I don't think there's got to be a character in there, no matter where you come from, you can relate to because you, everybody's been afraid of something. And you know, I haven't seen the whole thing. So unless you go way off the rails, I, I think it's... <laughs> Wait, it's, where did you tap out? Where did you tap out? Four. We, we, they gave us four gave episodes us four. to watch. Okay. It all goes downhill after that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Melodramatic. Uh, but I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, who do you see as the, the, the ideal audience? Or is it just you, anybody? I mean, clearly people who are into horror, clearly people who are into history, clearly black folks, clearly brown folks, but who, who, do, you, who do you want to see this? And, and what would you hope to come of this? Because fear is also cathartic. And if I may, just to add to that, the reason that, import, that question that Mike is asking uh, little Marvin is so important is because as I told you, I'm not a black person, I'm a brown person. What? Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, am I on the wrong? Am I on the wrong podcast? No. <laughs> as, a, as a brown person, I'm experiencing this thing differently. So, did you have that in mind for me? Yes. Listen, all of these, all of our experiences are completely nuanced and complex, and and there are myriad experiences. Whether you're black, brown, indigenous, whatever we are, they're all different and unique. Um, I want everybody to come to the table. I will say, and I've said this from the beginning, I need white people to see this show <laughs> in many, many ways. I, I hope that white people come to this show with an open mind um, and an open uh, heart and um, honestly interrogate, maybe learn a thing or two. Like I said, so many of my white friends seem very surprised. And that's a shock to me. If I think about the last 100 years of just literature, cinema, music, poetry, all the art forms that have contended with the Black experience in this country, and you're just surprised, you're like, just now waking up to it? Okay. Like, but I, I want all folks to come to this. I, I, don't think, I don't think many of these things will be a surprise to Black folks, though I hope that the nuance within it um, our ambition of that anyway. I hope that's felt. Um, so another question I had is one that Mike and I have actually been talking about in the last several episodes of the, of the podcast, which is who is allowed to tell our stories? 
And one of the things is that in your show, you have a lot of white directors um, and there's a lot of white staff in your show that contributes to the storytelling here. Should white directors, should white people be allowed to tell black stories and to kind of have some sort of ownership in that? Or do we give our own people their shot to be directors and writers and producers and, 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 and also be a part of that clique of telling those stories? I mean, I think it's important to say a few things about that. I, there is a misinformation being said that I can, I've heard about, about our staff in particular, which is untrue. At any given time, there were more folks of color at that table than there were white. There were four folks of color at that table. There were three that were white. Plus, the showrunner's assistant and the creator's assistants, which, as anyone in this industry knows, is the first leg into getting into the room and to being seen and to being at the table. In both cases, those folks were black as well. So very specifically, those I have to just say that because I've been hearing kind of like tricklings of information, which is all wrong. So I feel the need to put that to bed. The other thing I would say about the director's piece is... I, this is my first show. What I actually wanted was to work with independent horror directors that I, whose work I've admired. In every case, the people that got hired for this job have been people whose movies I've loved. They're independent. They're, they're ferociously talented as producers, as directors, and as filmmakers within the genre space. So that's how they got picked. And another thing people never even think about, the Black folks we wanted to go to were working. <laughs> like, they were busy. So there's all sorts of intricacies that go into this that I feel like it's necessary to nip in the bud because people hear something and run with it and then it becomes well this is just what it's not um also in our not not to, not to speak too highly or to kind of toot my own horn my first show out the gate is dealing with every single fucking feeling i've ever had about being black in this fucking country is that not enough <laughs> let's start there like, let's start with the positives, man. You've got two black folks as executive producers of a horror melodrama in the 50s, which has never happened in TV. Let's start with the good, right? Like, let's like, rather than that story that's percolating, let's start with the wins. And then as I continue forward, now the door has been kicked open for me. Now I'm like, okay, I've made one season of TV. Now, how do I shift this and do my part like Lena did for me for that next wave? So... Sorry for the therapy, but I'm hearing these like little things and I'm like, I just need to do this shit. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I, think, I think that they're interesting conversations because we, talk, we talked about this um, with, about Damon Lindelof in Watchmen. Should white people be telling stories of color? Listen, I think, it's, I think it's nuanced. I think it's complex and I think it's case by case. I mean, yes, I'm certainly... Uh, I think it's case by case, because in a case like Damon Lindelof, it was done, obviously, in the ways that you say, and very thoughtfully, and, and every piece of that was done so thoughtfully that I would never take that away from him. That was necessary, and it was done in a beautiful, vital way. Kudos. There are many other ways where I'm like, did we need Green Book? Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, so it's nuanced. There's, there's a complexity to this that, like, you have to get right. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that there are not enough of us in the room ever at any given point. And by the way, this isn't just a filmmakers and storytellers. It's the crew. It's it's the it's the executives. It's the people who are who are at, who are actually pitching our life stories to, and who are deciding what gets made. If we're not in those rooms, actually helping to make those decisions, the storytelling suffers. So I think it's nuanced. I don't think it's just flat out no white folks shouldn't. But if you're gonna do it, man, you better do it with every piece of integrity and authenticity you can, or just don't do it. <laughs> you know. 
my belief is that, you know, we've seen decades and decades and decades of horror films, mostly white characters with the black character or the Latino character or the character of color is going to get killed. We all know that it's part of a joke. Same thing with science fiction. But I, I think Black Panther, Get Out, uh, this series, what, what recently happened, what, what's beginning to happen, I think, Black horror, Afrofuturism, I think it's going to take over to, to the extent where there's so much we have to say. I, I'm, I come from that science fiction point of view of like, look at what the humans are doing, you know? So, you know, we, we, we as a culture have so much to say. What I loved, loved, loved about your pilot was how you took all the tropes that we know from the 50s, from the titles, the music, and say, okay, what were the black folks doing when, you know, Beaver was being left? You know, so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Literally, right. it's so, like a parallel yeah. between those two worlds, right? So, so my question to you is, as you're riding this crest, you know, you've got a, you're little Marvin, big Marvin now. Uh, so, <laughs> what is your, your thoughts? As I'm super optimistic. I think that black horror, Latino horror is, is happening. Uh, heroes of color. I, I just think that, the genre films have always dominated the box office, but we haven't had we haven't had access to those stories. And I think stories are the way to change reality. So I want to know about your thoughts on the power of horror of color and and what you what do you think is going to happen? I share your optimism. I have to say, your optimism gives me chills, and I and, it, and, and it honestly, it does, and it gives me life. I think we have that is the true story here, is that I do see this shift happening. I've benefited from this shift. You mentioned Get Out. You mentioned these. I've benefited directly from the fact that 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 was proven to be. First of all, that was a masterpiece. Love that movie. That worked on every single level, and it was a blockbuster. If we don't think that that then kicked open the door for me and for others to come through, of course it did. And now my hope is that the success, hopefully, or at least some people like it, the success of this will help to do the same for the next. Uh, I'm incredibly positive about it uh, because I've just I've benefited directly from it. And I would also say the catharsis of this for me has been tremendous. I grew up, like every movie that I loved, we were never in. I mean, when I think about my favorite movies of all time, The Exorcist, The Shining, Rosemary's Baby, all the films of Alfred Hitchcock, Don't Look Now, I could go on. In every single instance, folks who look like us were the but we were the shoeshine boy, we were the driver, we were the elevator boy, we were the maid, we were the mammy, we were the nanny. We were never at the center of the frame, ever. And so again, to talk about the emotion, I would sit on set at that monitor and we would set up Chuck Overese, who's our DP, who I brilliant, who I have to call out. You know, we do a classic sort of Brian De Palma split diopter shot and we're paying homage to these classic sort of Hitchcock frames, but where only Eva Marie Saint or Grace Kelly or, you know, these or Jimmy Stewart would have been. Instead, here's Deborah Irende and here's Ashley Thomas occupying the fucking center of that frame. And I, dude, I would just ball up because the kid in me who remembers never seeing himself, you don't realize when you never see yourself, you're being subtly and not so subtly erased from all of the things you're loved. You love. You're being told you can love these things, but you're not of these things, right? So like to actually sit there in this hot seat and reclaim those frames, take those frames back and put the folks who have never been at the center at the center, it's just the beginning.
That's it for this 45th episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Little Marvin for being on the show. And if you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Tirado, and you can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're also on Clubhouse at Jack Rico and at Mike Sargent. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.